Thank you. All right. First John chapter two. One verse I'm going to read here and then we'll dive into this. First John chapter 2 and verse 2 says, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, please help me tonight, one, to stay true to your word. Please give me understanding and give me wisdom. And, and Lord, control what I say and how I say it. I pray that the words would be in such a manner that we could understand and it would bring clarity and that it would help us to be grounded in your word. And, uh, Lord, use it to draw us closer to you. And so please bless tonight. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't remember the... I was trying to think today when, when the first time I came across the doctrine of Calvinism. Um, and the earliest I can think of would have been right around 1998 here in Alaska. Um, I knew of it, of course, prior to, but I didn't know a whole lot about it. Basically, what if I learned in a few Bible college courses, and, and, and you quickly learn when you do come across a Calvinist, what you learn in a couple of basic Bible college courses does not nearly equip you when you come across a staunch Calvinist. They will eat you alive. Um, they are, many of them live for the debate of the doctrine, it seems. They are ready for it. They are prepared for it. And, um, but I was trying to think back when I was getting involved. As in many issues in my life, I always like how it comes about. I remember when I had to deal with the, being 19 years old and, and coming across that fellow I worked with new in the Air Force who believed unless you spoke in tongues you were lost. I don't have a clue what he was talking about, but that caused me to dive into it much more so than I got in a lecture and a seminar in Bible college. So diving into it and studying out, studying it out to the SDA, to the seven-day Adventist that had worked there. And him coming up with those, remember those old printers, Jerry, that had, was it dot matrix, the little things on the side, ding, 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 ding. He handed me like, like 30 pages, he said, were all scriptures proof that you could lose your salvation. And uh, so, uh, so I had to deal with both these individuals, brand new in the Air Force, and again, those guys have no idea how much they help me with my theology. I mean, they caused me to dive into the Bible and to figure out why I believed what I believed. And, um, and then with Calvinism, the earliest memory I have was, was I was now in management at Continental, assistant pastor here. Although, I do, to my knowledge, this church was not reformed, but this man was on staff and he was the assistant pastor at Bruin Park. And he was a Calvinist. And so he was a salesman, and we got talking one day, and, um, and it, it came up. And uh, anyhow, I remember diving into it more right there and dealing with him. Since that time, like I've mentioned, I've, I've come across it much, much, much more. Um, especially, I started really noticing the rise when I was on debutation. Um, I did not come across any churches at that time that I went into that was switching over to reform. But nonetheless, I was hearing the stories of that taking place, that there was a strong rise in Calvinism. And then I got to hear some of the more heartbreaking stories on the side of the house of churches being split over it, families being separated over it. And um, I've, I know of two pastor friends of mine, two Two really good men. I won't bring them up because I, I, don't, I don't think they would mind it all, but I, I don't know if I have liberty to give their names, but everybody in this church knows them. And, and anyhow, both their son-in-laws went into Calvinism. So thus, their families did along those same lines. And of course, that causes division. That causes issue with it. And then the church when Levi was born almost 18 years ago in Cairns, Australia... I've told you that story in the very first message of this. They were in the middle of the changeover. They were using John Piper's book.
switching your church over to Calvinism at the time. And they had went through a split. There was a smaller church that broke away and had started. I can't remember the name of, of that one as a result of that. But there's been a strong rise in Reformed theology. We need to understand it because on a, I think there are several reasons why, why it really saw such a strong resurgence within Baptist churches. Now, it, it's, it's affected independent Baptist churches. But boy, when you get into the convention, whoo, did they have a battle with it. And they still do. Now, they actually have, you know, you wouldn't think so. Now they even have bigger battles they're facing. Like they just had to remove, it took them, what surprised me was Rick Warren was just removed. If you, I don't know if you know who Rick Warren is, from the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm like, now? After everything that guy's done, you now remove him? I mean, you had to see this coming 20 years ago with what was taking place at Saddleback. And, and of course, she took Baptist off the name. And that's, that's, that's a good thing. I, I don't want people thinking that's a Baptist church. Um, and, and so anyhow, um, it's something that you need to understand be aware. Because, let me get back to what I was saying. Why I personally believe, looking at it, why did it all of a sudden have a, a bit of a resurgence? Because it certainly did. Um, we weren't seeing churches for about 10, 15 years leaving Reformed theology. We were seeing churches embrace it that before had denied it. So there was a resurgence. Um, part of that, I, I, I believe this. I believe that within independent fundamental Baptist churches coming through the 70s, 80s, into the 90s, those of you who have been part of, part of independent Baptist since that time... Um, will probably recognize this to be true. I know it's true because it was my experience. Okay? And that is, there was, there was uh, an incredible shallowness in the services. Very, 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 very much. Um, as I've said many times, you knew, there's, I, I think of a church that I was a member of. It, it was a church that fell apart, does not, does not exist. But I am not, I'm not being sarcastic when I tell you. I could tell you what every service was going to be. Um, there were times when he would start preaching, I could literally guess the guy's outline. Um, and none of it that he preached was, wasn't nothing that wasn't true or that we didn't need. It was just the same thing repeated. It was, for back then, it would be soul winning, standard, separation, um, that's what we're going to get on Sunday night, on Wednesday night, Sunday morning, 100% of the time was a gospel message. Um, and expository preaching was literally made fun of and mocked at, um, which is astounding to me that that took place. Just shocking. But it did. Now understand that some of the men who are today, I believe, uh, uh, responsible for the resurgence of Calvinism in America are also some of the greatest expositors that are out there. Um, so I think you had the pendulum switch. You had the pendulum all the way over here. All right? And we began to recognize, keep in mind, at the same time Calvinist research, there was another, I don't know what the word is, awakening taking place in a lot of our Baptist churches that we, we were messing up in other areas. We had this one, two, three prayer, prayer thing that was clearly, clearly major problems. And that was also coming to the forefront now of, wait, what are we doing here? I mean, no kidding, think about this. This is not an exaggeration. You'd have churches claim, no, we had 17,237 saved this year. We grew by two. And they thought that was normal. It's not. Something's wrong. It's not that the, it's not that the intent was evil, not that the motive was evil. Um, it was in how, of course, we were presenting the gospel. It became a form of manipulation of running through. Uh, again, the, the height of that that I saw was by a preacher I know well. He wrote the book on soul winning. I have preached for him. I preach in a church. I've been out on visits with him. And reading his book on, and by the way, when I've been out with him, when he's witnessed, he follows his book to a T. Again, no sarcasm here. The person he's talking to doesn't even have a choice if they're getting saved. He might as well be a Calvinist. He doesn't. Once he finishes the presentation, and this is how he teaches it right in his book. If you've read his book, you're going to know this. He's the only, of all the soul winning books I've read, and I, any of them I have that written by our preachers, I will read. And he's the only one that goes to this extreme with it. 
when you, get, when you finish your presentation, and that is just a very quick one through, Romans 3, 10, 3, 23, 5, 8, 6, 23, you run through it. You just simply, at that time, ask if we can pray, and you pray. And then, once you finish your prayer, you don't say amen yet. While you're holding that person's hand, you say, if you'd like to go ahead and pray with me, dear Lord, and then they repeat. They repeat. Again, you've heard me say, people like to be led. Very, very few people will say no to that. You will get multitudes of decisions, but there's no repentance and faith in the vast majority of those. Present the gospel effectively. Um, and so anyhow, I think that's part of the reason why we saw such a pendulum switch uh, over was because of what was taking place the, in, in many of our services. That wasn't true. I don't mean to broad brush that. And, and, and uh, there certainly still were a lot of good churches really developing and, 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 and going strong with some great ministries and doing very well. There was many churches like that. But overall, there was such a... I, I mean... Think about this. My first class on homiletics, by the way, they refused to call it homiletics because, outright, I'm not even going to get it, carnal reason. My first class in homiletics, which, again, I am 19, 20 at this. I'm like, I remember laughing at that. I'm like, I'm not doing this. And at the time, he was probably considered our greatest preacher in independent fundamental Baptist circles. You would write in your notes, laugh here, cry here. It was all a show. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. If I want to cry, I just got to look at Bob, and I'll cry. <laughs> so we do need to understand Calvinism, because it's out there. It, it, it appeals to the intellect. Um, there's different ways. The devil's been at this for thousands of years. He, he knows what he's doing. That's going to lead me into this portion of this message right now. The devil many times uses the exact same techniques over and over, and not just within Christianity. I started this a little bit at the end of Unconditional Election, but I'm going to read some more to you today. I'm going to give direct quotes from the Koran. Um, these are all from different books and chapters. I have them written down here. I'm not, I'm not going to give those. But um, Quote number one. No calamity occurs, no affliction comes, except by the decision and preordainment of Allah. Second quote. Every created soul has this place written for him, either in paradise or in hell fire. His happy or miserable fate is predetermined for him. Third quote, all from the Quran. There are people who consider predestination untrue. Then they consider the Quran untrue. People merely carry out what is foregone conclusion, decided by predestination and written down by the pen. Fourth quote. Allah created Adam and then rubbed Adam's back with his right hand and brought forth uh, his wife. Then he said, I have created these as the inhabitants of paradise. Then he rubbed his back with his left hand and said, I have created those, another group of people, for the fire, and they will act as the inhabitants of the fire. A man asked, O messenger, how is that? Muhammad replied, when Allah creates a human being for paradise, he employs him to act as the inhabitants of paradise, and he will enter paradise. And when Allah creates a human being for the fire, he will employ him to act as the inhabitants of the fire, and thus make him enter the fire. Last quote from the Quran. Nothing will happen to us except what God has decreed for us. Whom God doth guide, he is on the right path. Whom he rejects from his guidance, such are the persons who perish. You know, if I was just to change a few words in those quotes, you would have, that's almost how I did it. I started off and I said, I'm going to change this instead of Allah. I'm going to say God. And I was going to ask you, does that sound like quotes from, uh, you know, a book by Owen or any book by any prominent Calvinist who writes? And I think you'd have a hard time distinguishing saying, yeah, yeah that, that does sound like it. But those are all from the Quran. Here's another interesting similarity which is often overlooked. Um, and this goes back to the person of John the Calvin himself. Again, if you want to know more about him, I suggest you listen to the introductory message. I get into more of John Calvin's life. Anyhow, this is from a book about what took place in Geneva. 
1552, the council declared Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion to be holy doctrine which no man might speak against. Does any other faith in the world do that when they come in and set up and establish a religious law that you will not speak against it come to mind? Thus, the state issued dogmatic decrees, the force of which had been anticipated earlier as when this enemy of Calvin, his name was Gruet. A known opponent of Calvin was arrested. He was tortured for a month and beheaded on July 26, 1547. Here was his crime. For placing a letter in Calvin's pulpit calling him a hypocrite. Later on, after they beheaded him, Gruet's book, he wrote, was later found burned along with his house while his wife was thrown out into the street to watch. And there's others here. Within five years of that law being in place in Geneva, those who broke that particular law, there were 58 sentences of death, 76 of exile, besides numerous committals of the most eminent citizens to prison within five years of that law taking place. The similarities to me are incredible at times. All right, but now, let's tie into the L. We've talked about total depravity, um, which, again, how that one alone just doesn't cause people to run from it. The idea of how that is taught, that regeneration precedes faith, is nowhere, nowhere found in Scripture. But remember why they had to teach that. Because of their definition of when a man is depraved. They believe, they relate it to physical death. That he has a complete inability to seek God. That unless regeneration takes place, he will never seek God. So that's why they say regeneration must precede faith. Because they start from a faulty premise from Calvin's writings, which were based on Augustine. That's who he was a fan of. Calvin admits that over and over. He didn't hide that. Because of how he looked and viewed viewed that, that there was an inability to seek God, which we saw that isn't true in Scripture. So because of that, they have to have regeneration preceding faith. But in Scripture, that's not how it works. Faith in Christ comes, then regeneration hits. And then unconditional election, which was the decree. And, of course, we read those out of, the, out of, out of their doctrines, the Westminster, and um, the decree that God has preordained some to eternal life and some to damnation. Now we get into limited atonement. This is one where you do that. Some who follow Reformed theology find this one repulsive. Um, but you really can't. If you deny this, as I'm going to see in some of their own quotes, you have to deny all of it. Remember, all these, the tulip wasn't established by John Calvin. All the teaching was of each, each element of this. But again, the tulip, the, the, tulip, the tulip was not put in a systematic uh, method until the debate with Arminianism arose. Then it was put into this form of a T-U-L-I-P, the tulip. Okay? Um, and where was I going with that? I don't even know. Um, but anyhow, they're all built and rely on each other. That's what I was going with. And so when Calvin was in his thought, you can tell the guy was a genius. There's not a question about that. His mind, he was a lawyer. Um, and when he left Catholicism, it, it still is amazing to me. That, that alone would give me pause. Within 12 months of, quote, conversion of leaving Catholicism, the institutes were basically done. But anyhow, he had a, very much a legal mind. And so when he started with his wrong premise, which was, comes from his following of Augustine, that's where the wrong premise came from. He, using logic, built upon that a theological system that when you start with that wrong premise, it perfectly made sense when he looked at Scripture, but he started with a wrong foundation, with a wrong premise. He had wrong presuppositions coming into it when he wrote it. So now, anyhow, limited atonement. Definition. It is the teaching that Christ's death on the cross was only for the elect and the elect only. That the atonement was limited to those God chose to salvation. So by limited atonement, 
that when Christ died, that when his blood was shed in order to purchase redemption, that it was only for the elect. All right? This is one of their doctrines. This is, this is about the only part of the tulip that, they, that I don't have to go through verses to argue against because they don't have any. Unconditional election, I had to. Total depravity, I had to. The others, I'm going to have to. This one, there's one that they use, and I am going to cover that one. Um, but that's very easy. See why many don't go to it. John Piper does, and I'll cover his quote, and then I'll, I'll, I'll cover why that one is a misrepresentation of it. But this is built because of the logical deductions that he was coming on, that this thing would be the case. <clears throat> um, uh, let's see. Calvinists spend their time trying to explain away with limited atonement the words like all, every, world, whole world. For instance, Christ died for all. Um, Christ loved the whole world. It's within this element, this spectrum, was where they argue the love of God. They argue that God has two kinds of love, which is uh, this. Uh, I, I, don't, I can't remember their terminology. Basically, I'm, I'm going to use my term for this because it's not coming to mind right now. A basic love for the world, but then he has this more genuine love for the elect. And it is a separate, but lo- God's love is God's love. That's what it is. And he loves the world. But they've got to get around that, this thing with limited atonement. So we're going to cover how they try and get around that. And we'll get into that here this evening. Um, all right. <clears throat> Let me get some quotes here. From prominent Calvinists in regards to limited atonement. First quote. It is simply Arminian to believe Christ died for all men. And remember, we're not Arminius and we're not Calvinists. Arminians believe you can lose your salvation. They have plenty of their own errors. Um, number two, if limited atonement is not true, then Calvary is a sham. Third quote, astonishing. A Christ for all is really a Christ for none. Fourth quote, the Bible teaches again and again that God does not love all people with the same love. Love by God is not applied to the world, but only to the saints. Here's a, this, is by, this one's by Hodges. Just think of this. If they talk about those who criticize Calvinism, if they could prove that the love which prompted God to give his son to die as a sin offering had for its objects all men, that Christ actually sacrificed his life with the purpose of saving all on the condition of faith, then the central principle of Arminianism is true and Calvinism false. He was on target with that quote, actually. One of the common thoughts when you read the writings is that if Christ died for all, but all are not saved, then his blood is wasted. And so they then make an argument that there's not one drop of his blood that is wasted. What they forget, I'm going to make the argument here coming on. It's simple. I'm just going to give it now. Understand this. If Christ's blood was good enough to save one man, it was good enough to save all. I was reading the book when I was in New Guinea. That, that's when really when I was having to dive into it much more because of what had taken place at Trinity Baptist in Cairns, Australia, and then with my blog. Um, uh, it ended up getting into the debates when my blog had taken off and I did the, did the, uh, uh, the blog, the one post against Calvinism. Um, and I read this. <clears throat> um, yeah, this would have been New Guinea. The, he was explaining... How to witness. And I am not, not exaggerating, not taking anything out of context. He, lit, he said directly. Now, not all Calvinists would agree with this. Uh, you know, many, many, many would not. Men like MacArthur would not. But anyhow, he says this in his book. You never tell the person that Christ died for them. Because you don't know. How do you witness to somebody without telling them that Christ died for them? And by the way, if they're listening to you, according to your definition of total depravity, then that would show that they're seeking. Well, you could stop now because they're obviously elect and they don't, even, they don't even need anything else you're going to say. <clears throat> the truth is the doctrine of limited atonement is outrageous. It's absurd and it certainly is not in Scripture. 
as, as I've pointed out, as we'll see, they have no source verses to support it. It is of deductive reasoning based on a theological system that were in the Institutes. So we're going to dive into this a little bit. Uh, the question is, where does the Bible state that Christ's blood cannot be shed for those who would not benefit? Is there a verse like that? Not one. Not one in Scripture. Not one. Let's look at some Bible verses here. Let's go to Isaiah. Fifty-three, verse six, a popular verse. Oh, I didn't give the chapter out yet. Sorry about that. Isaiah fifty-three. I'll go to some of these other verses much quicker, just for time's sake. Here, you can try and follow, or you're you're, you're fine just to sit and listen as I read them. I should have wrote them all out. It would have been much more efficient. Isaiah fifty-three, six. All we like sheep have gone astray. And we have turned everyone to his own way. Now, let's stop right there. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Is that true of mankind? Of everyone? It is. Now finish the verse. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He died for all. Go to John chapter 1. I also, we even have those who are even here who has had seen uh, a Calvinism be divisive in their history in church and in family. John chapter 1, verse 29. Notice the, the wording here. Sometimes we quote this wrong. At, at times, just simply on accident, I, I will misquote this, even though I realize what it says. Sometimes I just fly through it. But I think it's important. The next day, John, John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin, singular, of the world. Of the world. The sin of the world. Let's flip over to John chapter 3, 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth of the elect in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the elect of the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that of the elect who believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. No that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. For God so loved the world. And I will address how they confront, because we often ask, because I know I was there asking, how do they get around that? I'm going to discuss the semantics they use in getting around John 3.16. There's these like theological gymnastics that takes place. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then verse 18, I think, is, is, is great for the context of this. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed the name of the only begotten Son of God. The reason why I'm including verse 18 in that, of course, it deals with faith, which is the element of salvation, which really for for many of the evangelical Calvinists, they wouldn't deny that at all. There's many who are, some of you have come to ask them, there's many who are genuinely converted and genuinely saved. Um, and, and they would agree with that. But how they twist John 3.16, their catch is in John 18, because it makes it very personable. And you'll understand when I, when I cover that here in a little bit. Let's turn over to John, a couple more, over a couple more chapters. So John chapter 7. Verse 37, just the words of Christ. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. 
if any man. Let's go to the book of Romans chapter 5. Verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. That's everyone. First Timothy. First Timothy, I'm going to come back to in a few minutes as well again. Let's start in verse number, we'll start in verse 4. Who will have all men to be saved. I mean, this just isn't complicated. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. And by the way, you can see that one, that one's going to tie right into destroying irresistible grace, but we'll get more into that when we get to the eye. Who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Let's see. Let's go on. Yeah, let's go to some... Let's go to Second Peter 3. Second Peter 3, turn there. I'm going to read one more verse in Romans. I wanted to read. We just get to Second Peter. Again, w- one of my favorite verses in regards to the truth of the gospel, all men, that uh, I think destroys much of the tulip. That is verse 18 of Romans chapter 5. I want to read it again. Therefore, as by one offense, therefore, as by, excuse me, therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. All men. We all know that all have sinned. We're all in condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. I mean, contextually there, it's dealing with all have sinned and then including everyone that that justification of life has been made available. We're going to cover their arguments. They get into a universal salvation argument, all this stuff. Um, now, First Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we see it time and time again throughout. I, there's other verses in First John, but I think that's enough for now. Time's, time is really moving on me right now. I probably did a little bit too long of an introduction there. So, how does Calvinism get around these obvious statements um, that clearly state the entire world, all men, every man, and... A lot of times you'll get this that you'll you'll it's depending on who you're arguing with. A lot of times they'll, they'll they try and take an intellectual high road on you. All right, they'll try and come in an approach. It's 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 pure psychology. It's it's you're not understanding. You're not understanding. It's, you you just it's almost like your view is too simplistic here of the gospel. And I'm I'm gonna and, and uh, so I'm gonna help you through that. And and so there's and nobody wants to think they're stupid. Oh, um, so that and again. But let's dive into this. How do they get around it? Because um, obviously they claim that the words that we're reading in many of these verses, not in all of them, apply to the elect. Um, or it simply means is available to all tribes, including the Gentiles. So we get like, for instance, in John 3.16, the argument that is, there's many different arguments made, but the argument that they tend to stick with in most writings goes like this. That when God said for God so loved the world, that what he meant was that the gospel is now available to Jew and Gentile. That that's what he meant. That he wasn't, they have wording for it. Uh, what is it? I thought I wrote it down here. Um, uh, let's see. I'm almost positive I did. I'll probably get to it later on in my notes. But uh, I was writing from their material how they term that. They term that in regards to God's love. 
And, and so th- that's how they want to get around that. But that's why verse 18 is important, because you see, that's not what he's talking about. It goes to the individual person, not just Jew and Gentile, that in this world, this is for every man who believeth. Not just these elect. Remember, and we covered that when we looked at these things. When God, when those verses were dealt with, we saw them. It was never this thing to salvation. It, it never was. We saw what God determined. The real decree was simple. That in his sovereignty, that he determined with man's free will, which in no way that, that would thwart God. No, it doesn't. He's God. It doesn't at all. It was in his sovereignty he chose this. That of those people who are there, that all those who choose to believe, he would save. I want you to think about this. Those verses that I read, the series that we went through, please think on this. If you you had never heard of the doctrine of Calvinism, you would never come to the conclusion on any of those. Oh, this is talking about a select group. You would have to be taught that. I want you to think about this. That's true for the majority of biblical errors that are being taught today. If something doesn't flow, it's it's, it's not, it can't blanket it. I mean, there'll be probably some exceptions, although none are coming to my mind. That's just like one of my, I have a lot of problems with the gap theory. A lot. A lot. There's many problems here. The premise of how it came about, when it came about, there's much there. But one of the biggest problems I have with it is, is when you read Genesis chapter 1, you read the first four or five verses, there's not a person alive, ever, that has read Genesis, that knew nothing of the gap theory, that stopped after they read verse 2 and said, you know what, there's some gap here between verse 1 and 2. Something happened here. You would never do that. That would never take place. It's, you, in other words, remember what I said in the first week. You got a lot of sincere, really good people. I mean, some people that, to me, when even when I read after them, when I'm studying, they can be incredible with the scriptures. I mean, really. But when it comes to this side of the house, it's like the glasses come on, and they interpret it through that light of Calvinism. <clears throat> So, as we're going to see, they play different, what I'll refer to as games, semantics with these verses. Oh, yeah, here's the, I did write it down here. Here's their wording on John 3, 16, regards to God's love in the world. God met not the whole world without exception, but without distinction. That's how they separate that. That he loved the whole world, not without exception, that there are people who clearly he doesn't love, that would be the non-elect. So they said they met it in distinction between classes now of Jew and Gentile. So they're doing the, the gymnastics to make that match their theology. But understand, that doesn't line up with all the verses we read, nor does it go into verse 18 when he gets specific on a personal level of how it's acquired by faith. He doesn't go into verse 18. Now, Jew and Gentile of the elect, this is now available. It's kind of like this. Let's say I wrote this. If I was a dairy farmer, and I say, I'm going to sell all my cows. Would I mean just male and female? Or would I mean all my cows? It's just like we saw in Romans chapter 5 and verse 18. It is semantics. But they have to address it because it's there. The verse we read to start off with is 1 John 2, 2. I'm going to give you a quote from Piper on this verse. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I mean, that thing really does destroy it. But nope, when you have it, if you view it from Calvinism, um, where am I at here in my notes? This refers to believers in the scattered world. No, that's not what he is referring to there at all, actually, in 1 John chapter 2. He's dealing with who Christ is, who we are, and what he did. That's what he's referring to. 
So now when it comes to redemption, when Christ died, remember, he died for sin itself. He died to pay the wages of sin. This is important. This gets into him dying for all men, not limited. The truth is, if, as, this is another way of wording what I said earlier. To deliver just one person, Christ would need to pay the penalty of sin. Which if it's good enough for one, do you understand the theology that I'm trying to write? Then it is good enough for everyone. And there are some, but then again, then you've got to, you have to be hypocritical with your view on limited atonement. There are those that I have read that would agree, that are Calvinists, that agree with that statement I just made. But you can't stay consistent with that. You can't run that, because and, and, that, that's going to break down other parts of your theology if you're going to hold to that. But then they back up and you corner with that, well, that's just the secret counsels of God. No, it's not. It's, it's in your own writings. Address it. The following verses, we're not going to for time's sake, deal with Christ dying for sin in the singular. One I've already addressed, that is John 1.29, Romans 5.12 that we all know, Romans 6.23 that we all know, and 2 Corinthians 5.21. Christ's death was our substitution because of our sin. It was providing a way back to God because of the fall of man. The fall, as we read in Romans 5.18, condemned all men. So the sacrifice of one, the Lord Jesus Christ, paid the penalty for all men. God's holiness, God's justice demanded payment for sin, which was fulfilled in Christ. His payment was enough for all sin. All. Not just the elect. Again, for time's sake, I'm not going to turn there, but we read, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 10, that he was the sacrifice for our sins. I'm going to come back to this verse again in a minute. I need to address it, 1 Timothy 2.6. He is the ransom for our sins. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, that we know Hebrews 1.3, we see he removes the guilt of sin. Expiation is what that's called. He is the propitiation of our sins. We read that in 1 John 2, 2. That means to satisfy, to appease. His death appeased for sin. It was enough. Jesus, through his death on the cross, his shed blood provided reconciliation. He provided the way back to God for all men. All will choose not to receive, not all, many will choose not to receive it. But it has been paid for. Because of all this, please understand, Christ's death was enough for all of mankind. Because he removed the consequences of sin. Now I want to show you... Look at this verse here. I'll go to one of these. I do want you to see this. You might want to even mark this one down. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 2. I want you to see this. I'm going to, I'm going to jump around a little bit. I want to start. Don't, don't get ahead of me. I want to surprise you. I'm going to start in verse 1, but don't read all of it. But there were false prophets also among the people, as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable, heresy, um, damnable heresies. And then let's go on. He, taught, he makes comparisons then about this group of people, uh, of their, 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 their feigned words, and, and whose judgment now of long time lingereth not, that their damnation slumbereth not. For if God spared not the angels that sin, but cast them down, how he's going to judge them. Does everybody understand that? So is this group going to heaven or hell? They're going to hell. Now let's finish verse 1. Let me start again. But there are false prophets also among you, uh, also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, 
who uh, privily shall bring in uh, damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought who? Them. But they're going to hell. So how is that possible? Because limited atonement isn't true. Even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Now, here's the argument that comes about where they like to say, listen, if you actually believe that if you don't believe limited atonement is true, they try to box you in and, and certain things that you don't want to be boxed into. They say this, then you have to believe in universal salvation. Nope, don't believe in universal salvation at all. Nor do I believe in limited atonement. I believe this is how God set it up. Because they believe if Christ's blood died for all, then all are saved. That's not what God taught. It's simply not. He nowhere teaches that. He clearly defines, just don't, just stay with the Bible. Don't worry about Augustine. Don't worry about John Calvin. This is what it says. He died for all, but he made very clear his death is not effectual for all. Well, how does it become effectual? Not through a preordained election. Want to know how it defines faith and repentance? They believe in universal salvation because, again, they're starting with the wrong premise. They're looking at it. Those glasses have come on, so that's the conclusion they have to come to. They ask the question, if God died for all, then why are not all saved? Palmer states that Christ obviously didn't die for all, or all would be saved. That's a quote from him. Because, again, they're viewing it through those glasses. They're starting with the wrong premise, with wrong presuppositions. Again, he died for all, but in his sovereignty, it is effectual only through those who come to Christ in faith. Spurgeon, by the way, uh, um, I've, I, I should have brought it. I had a section I was going to print. print. Spurgeon, really, he, as far as the particular Baptists, I talked about them. I think it was first or second message of this. He threw himself into such a controversy. Because of a statement he made, I was going to quote it to you, attacking limited atonement. And that just went into this, people, you're denying Calvinism. Remember, it wasn't popular. When you were coming up in, in, in Europe, you were basically a Calvinist. Like, like read, in parts, it was law. They also claimed in double payment. Well, that can't be true because then you have double payment for sin. No, you don't. Again, it's the way God said the double payment would be Christ dying for the sin and that person dies. No, because when it becomes effectual for you. That person, I mean, granted, they're, they're dumber than a box of rocks. If you, if you want to pay for it, what's already been paid for. But the store's not going to turn you down when you decide to do that. Again, they say then the sinner is suffering for sin when it's already been suffered by Christ. That, that's true. And th therefore, they term this double payment, which God does not require. This starts with the wrong presupposition. Those who go to hell or is of their sin do so because they rejected the payment freely offered. It's that simple. The payment was there. Done. They chose to reject it. It's not complicated. Don't let them force you into a box. Now, Piper likes to use this as a proof text, and I think I'll be done here with this. Yes, I'll finish with this. I wanted to finish with this. This is sort of the, the, the proof text, at least that uh, John Piper likes to use on limited atonement. We're going to read this. Um, I better have the right. Yes, okay, there we go. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Verse 45 says, 45 states, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. 
All right, so right here, he says this is a proof text for limited atonement because it says for many, not for all. First off, he's just ignored verse after verse after verse after verse that said all. But let's let the Bible define the word many here because that is a nonsense argument. Romans chapter 5. Let's let the Bible define many. I'm going to use two verses. Stay in Romans 5. Let me find the other one, and I'm going to be done. Okay. I'm going to use two verses to answer the argument of Mark 10.45. First one, and either of these will work all by themselves, standing alone. First one, Romans 5.19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Okay. Now, again, back in Mark, Mark, I should have held my place there. Mark 10.45, his argument is just a ransom for many. Let me ask you this question. In, in 5.19 here, for by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. The many there, is that all? Were all made sinners? They were. All were made sinners. Not some, but all. So as the Bible, in, in, in use of this, we see where it is used as all. That's not the only one. Look, let, let's look at the other part of, of Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. Let me cover that aspect. I covered the word many. Now let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and look at the word ransom. I'm going I'm to cover both. The word many and ransom. I'll let this, will also define many though as well. Who gave himself a ransom for? What's the next word? All. Who gave himself a ransom for all. Again, I went to Matthew. If you understand why I went to Romans 5, what's the answer there? It uses the same word many that is used in Mark chapter 10, but it means all. If that wasn't clear enough, okay, let's, let, let's look at this addressed again later on about Christ being a ransom. And it says for all. That, that is no proof text for the doctrine of limited atonement at all. Um, limited atonement is, is a false teaching. Christ clearly died for all men. It's not effectual for all, but he certainly did die for all men. And no, his blood isn't wasted, and no, there's no universal salvation because of it. Not at all. Not at all. And yes, in God's sovereignty... He chose to allow that man of his own free will to reject that payment that has been made. With heads bowed and eyes closed. Now again, I know this is more teaching tonight, but maybe you have something on your heart, something going on that you do need to come and pray about. And we certainly want to give time for that. And let me ask this really quick. I don't think we have any first time visitors here or anything like that. But, but maybe say, Pastor, I do need you to pray for me. I'm not certain that I am saved. I don't know for certain if I, if I was to die right now that I would go to heaven. Please, I want you to pray for me. I don't know that, and I certainly want to do that. I don't want to have a service without giving you the opportunity. Is there anyone here say, Pastor, please pray for me. I'm not certain that I am saved. Just raise your hand for me. All right. I just see just some little ones. All right, if you need to come and pray, you can come and pray. Father in heaven, bless this invitation, Lord. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Page 465, and if you need to come and pray, you come and pray.